Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Your saltwater guide with another phenomenal podcast for you today. It's Promar Ahi USA. Or no, it's, uh, what am I saying? It is Akuma Wednesday. Get that logo out of there. It's Akuma Wednesday, everybody. It's Akuma Wednesday. We're going to be talking, we're going to show you a beautiful product by Akuma today. Bill's got some vision products to show you from Akuma. So around the 20-minute mark, we'll show you some really spectacular Akuma products. But, gang, it's Wednesday. Wednesday means we get the great Bill Varney joining us. You got that nice, calm, soothing voice coming out of Bill. After you get yelled at by me for a few minutes, then Bill will jump on here and calm everything back down and bring it all down and everything will be mellow. We got tons of cool stuff to talk about today. This weather that you guys are experiencing and you're going to have for a while here is something to talk about. We got so much to talk about. I don't even want to waste any more time. Let's just bring Bill in. Welcome, buddy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, hey, hey. Good to be here. Good to be here. Happy Wednesday. Happy New Year. How cold is it there? Oh, my gosh. I think we've made it up to 20 now, but it was one this morning, which is really quite cold. Really yeah, yeah. cold. But we've had some awfully good ice fishing up here. I'm telling you, we we have unbelievable ice fishing. But yesterday, a guy pulled probably a 30 pound pike through the hole in the ice. You've never seen anything like that. When that you know, it's like a giant barracuda. It's like a three foot long, four foot long barracuda. So when that thing rolls out of this little hole, this hole's like this big around, just big enough for the body of the pike to get out of that thing. It's just amazing. Just great that fishing everywhere. Wow. That is weird. No, I, I've never seen it. But you know what? Those fish wouldn't feel any pressure from me because I guarantee you I'm never going ice fishing. Promise. <laughs> I'm not going. The, the first time I went, which was a few years ago, because I, I didn't go like the first year I moved here because I didn't have an auger. So the joke was, um, you need to, if you want to go fishing, you need to find a friend with an auger. So I would go around town. I go like down to the senior center over to the market or liquor store and guys be like, Hey, what are you up to? And I said, you know, not much, but do you have an auger? Do you know anybody who's got an auger? So I, I, I asked everybody in the whole County till I found somebody who had an auger. So he had this awesome, um, totally off the subject. He had this awesome propane auger. So you have like a manual auger that you can do by hand, which is totally useless. Then you have like a gasoline auger. They've got electric ones now, and then you have propane. So he had this propane auger, which was totally awesome. It was really quiet when it ran. So the, the shaft from the bottom of the shaft to the bottom of the engine is four feet. So he goes, hey, you know, we went out in this lake and he goes, and it was cold. It, it was like, I think it was five at noon. And I had talked to this old man who was on the lake who caught two big cut bows, one six pounder, one nine pounder. And he said, man, it was 15 below this morning at nine o'clock in the morning. I was like, oh, my God. So anyway, I took the auger. It was my turn to use it for the first time. 
to punch a hole in the ice. And I start going down to this thing. And I got all the way to the engine or the motor. And it finally punched through the ice. The ice was four feet thick. That was how much I, so I, I don't blame you. <laughs> it is cold. <laughs> to me, it looks like a great time to drink, but I don't drink. So I'm not going. <laughs> That's right. I'm not a drinker either. So, so I don't do that, but I I've, I've learned a lot from them. You know, like you bring a little piece of carpet, you know, that's like two feet by two feet for you. Because when you're sitting in your chair on the ice, if you don't have your feet, even though you have your snowmobile boots on, if you don't have your feet on that carpet, your feet will get freezing cold. So just a little piece of carpet or a doormat or something, we bring one of those along. And when you're not in a tent, you're sitting there, you got your feet on the carpet there. But the what it's it's so it's so cold that when you make it through the ice, of course, the ice starts to reform on the top, and you have a, like a a colander, I guess. I don't know what it is, but like a scoop and you scoop the ice off. But the air is so cold that as as you're reeling up your line, you have these little short rods, the um, water freezes on your line, which is not a big problem till it freezes on your guides. Because once the guides freeze, you, you can't retrieve your line. So what happens is th there's these really big fish. Like I said, there's 30 pound pike. There's a lot of five to 10 pound brown trout and maybe five to 15 pound cut bow trouts. And so you'll see a lot of guys, they'll get bit and they'll hook the fish and there's no reeling involved. You just back up on the ice till you got enough line to have that thing come out of the hole because your, your guides are all frozen up. There's no reeling or, or anything or fighting the fish. And in the summer, you know, these fish, you hook these fish, these big trout, and they are like fighting a big calico bass. I mean, they give you an incredible fight. And there's weeds out there. And they got you in the weeds. And and we use these like, you know, Lucky Craft five, six inch um, hard baits to fish for those big trouts. But just like we're fishing Bonito or big calico bass. And they'll fight like crazy. In the winter, because the water's so cold, their metabolisms really slow down. So they fight under the hole. And, but they come up pretty easy to the hole. And then you don't really know till you get them up to the hole how big they are. And when they start sliding out of that thing and they're two, three feet long, man, it takes your breath away how, what you just got all of a sudden. And we just let them go. You know, we unhook them and slide them back in the hole and off they go. Oh, they don't freeze to death being out there in one degrees? If, if you had them for you know, let's say three minutes out of the water, they will freeze. And and so the benefit of that is we have a lot of kokanee up here, which is, is salmon in the salmon family with a really pink meat and they're really delicious to eat. They don't get real big. They get like 25 inches maybe at the biggest. But if you catch those, you can just like take them off your hook and just throw them over your shoulder because there's ice all around you. You never have to worry about the fish going bad. So at the end of the day, you just like kick, kick them all into a pile and collect them in your, you know, I use like a, a little sled, put them in the sled and off to the car you go and <laughs> they're perfectly good. They defrost by the time you get home and you can clean them. Well, that sounds just wonderful. I will not be participating in any of that. <laughs> I promise you it is this morning. It was down into the mid seventies down here. I literally had a oh, jacket on. It was so oh That's freezing. Now. It's 85 and the ocean's 74 or 77 degrees. 
and the tuna fishing's insane, and we don't have to cut a hole in the ice, and my guides didn't freeze up. So <laughs> we got good. We got unusually warm water down here right now. I know they got unusually warm water in Southern California. So let's let's delve into that for a few minutes. Let's talk about this El Nino because you are just like me. They've been saying El Nino since 1983. Every year they predict an El Nino. They have. I, I'm sorry. I've, they've been predicting it since 83 when we had the first real one that any of us even knew the name of. So what do you think? Is this a real El Nino this time? You know, I, I think it is. I mean, the, the meteorological prognosticators have been talking about this particular El Nino now for three or four months, and they be, they saw it form. And, of course, what it basically is is it's a bulge in the warm water to the south of all of us that pushes north and pushes away the cooler water. Um, when we're looking at the water temperatures all the way to Santa Barbara are still up in the 60 degree, 62 degree. I mean, Santa Barbara was 61 the day before yesterday at a time of year where it's normally about 56 right now. So it, it is warmer. And then the other thing is like we had this giant swell. And just to give you an idea how big that swell was, Dave. The last time the surf was this big at Lanata Bay up in Palos Verdes was in 1968 when Greg Knoll was the first one to surf Lanata Bay. And the waves were 20, you know, they're like 30 foot back waves, 20 foot or excuse me, 30 foot faces and 20 foot backs of these waves. They were, they, it was huge surf. So when you see surf that big, you really um, would expect a big upwelling of cooler water. And we really didn't see that. And then I, and then you and I were just talking a few minutes ago. I, I said that in the last two days, I've received, uh, received two reports of Corbina, one from Hermosa Beach um, and the other one from San Diego, La Jolla and San Diego, of pretty nice sized Corbina that were caught in the last two days. Very unusual for this time of year. Um, not completely unexpected, but yeah, I think I think we were in an El Nino year for sure. All right. Now, a big question we're getting from a lot of people, and you guys, if you don't know how the show works on Wednesdays, on the screen there, either YouTube or Facebook, you have an area where you can leave a comment. If you have any questions you want to leave for Bill or for myself, feel free to type them in there. We will do our very best to answer those questions. But what I'm hearing a lot from everybody is, how is this giant swell going to affect the surf fishing when it calms down? What do, what do we got to look for? Our beaches are all going to be rearranged. Things are going to be totally different. I'm walking down the beach at the beach I usually fish. Now I can't fish there because the spot I fished isn't there anymore. What am I looking for now? What are we going to be doing, Bill? How are we going about this? You're exactly right. These big swells, and especially when they're accompanied by wind, um, reshape the beach. I mean, the beach, is, the beach has rocks, but the beach is mostly sand, hence the name beach. Um, and that sand moves around. And so all of these holes and troughs and things that people have been fishing all summer long, many of those will be gone. And, and the sand that was there is going to be moved most likely down the beach from the, from the north to the south. And what we normally find in years like this is, first of all, we find that rock structure, much of which has worms in it, because, of course, there's 3,000 variety of saltwater worms in the marine environment that is exposed 
and and that stuff's been under sand for years and all of a sudden it gets exposed all the i, I just call them the worm condominiums because you'll look at a lot of these rocks that are sandstone and once they get uncovered you'll notice that they have all these tiny little holes in them which are worms and clams or excuse me worms and uh, crabs that live in there little sidewinder type of crabs and different shore crabs and so the fish feed on those so that's the one thing you want to look for this time of year is you want to go walk the beach certainly at a low tide and find areas where new rock and uh, is exposed and you have new areas to fish the other thing to remember this time of year is that, you know, those swells are going to always work against you. So I'm always looking at like the leeward side of a, a jetty to fish. So if I'm in Huntington Beach and I'm looking out at the jetty at Bolsa Chica, I'm not going to fish on the right-hand side, the north side of it. I'm going to fish on the south-hand side of it because the swell, as it comes down the coast, is hitting that north side and the south side's getting protected. And that's where the fish are hiding, the oxygen is and their feed is spinning in a, a circle there. So that's where you're going to find the fish generally. And then the other thing is that if you look at a map of the California coast, particularly if you go to Google Earth and look at it, there's a lot of areas along from Santa Barbara to the Mexican uh, uh, border there that face south to some degree or to a lot of a degree. Really good example would be the Malibu to Leo Carrillo or Malibu, really all the way to Point Magoo zone. Much of that is facing south. So when this big swell comes in, it bypasses that because it's not facing it. It's actually got its back to it. And those become very productive areas for fishing in the wintertime because the fish will congregate there because there's enough movement for there to be oxygen and food and a place to, to hide. But it's not overwhelming like any west-facing beach would be. Oh, okay, well, that makes a ton of sense. That's stuff I didn't think about. That That is going to help all of us out tremendously. Now, with all this movement and all this stuff happening, we come out of this. Today, we got rain. We're going to have an afternoon breeze. And then tomorrow, it's kind of looking like it's going to straighten up a little bit. But then the weekend again, it's just gnarly. If you guys haven't seen what's going on this weekend, the wind is going to be blowing harder in San, not San Clemente Island, San Clemente, California, than it will be blowing at San Miguel Island at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. Devo, down there where you live, you're going to be hitting 25 to 30 knots of wind at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. What do you think between these storms? What's our, what's our chance of catching something in this giant mess? Is there going to be a lot of activity because everything's stirred up? You know, for, first of all, I think in the interim period between now and, and let's say Sunday, you're going to have good surf fishing. I mean, we've already seen it after the storm has, has ended, as I said, with a Corbina that people have caught and, and perch and stuff. But often in the surf, and you'll find this a lot, I don't know if you find this offshore, maybe you know, Dave, but in lakes for sure and in the surf, the compression from the low pressure zone as it comes in, as it sets up, which we're going to see on Sunday, really turns fish on to feed because they know, not from the fact that, you know, TV, we see there's a low here and a high here, but just from the, um, the uh, pressure that their ogolus feel in, in the ocean they know that a storm's coming, and so they'll feed before that. And then when the pressure gets to a certain extent, then they'll go hide and wait for that storm to go away. So that's the first thing. I think between now and then, and particularly on Friday, probably is going to be a very good surf fishing day. Um, and then the other thing is that 
this upcoming wind and this swell that's happening. So we have two different types of swells in the ocean. We have ground swells. Ground swells, which are formed by wind, are formed hundreds of miles offshore. So by the time they come to the coast, their shape is very well formed. The swell that we had last week was a ground swell. That's why when you looked at La Jolla Cove and you looked at um, Lanada Bay and Rincon, they had these incredibly perfect waves breaking. It was really some of the biggest and best shaped surf we'd seen in years. Well, this storm coming over the weekend has a very short fetch wind swell with swells being created less than 50 miles from shore, which is going to mean that you're going to have really odd sizes where you could have periods of small surf followed by periods of very large surf. But more importantly, the swells will be very close together. So instead of being sets of swells that are like 10 seconds apart and then a break of several minutes and then 10 seconds apart, you're going to have swells that are four, five, six seconds apart constantly for hours. And so that may turn over the water, which we didn't see with that big ground swell. It's really hard to say. It depends on how strong that push is from the south, pushing up that warm water. Um, but this wind swell that's coming will affect the, the surf fishing on the beach, and it may take three or four or five days for it to recover. And then earlier, before we went live, you and I were talking, and you're saying that you're seeing storm after storm after storm, wind storms for the month of January. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Let the people know where they could, because like I have windy.com and I can see 13 days ahead, but I can't see that far ahead. Where do you get your information? A lot of us out here want to know where you're getting your information from. Yeah, probably one of the best places is Wavecast, W-A-V-E-C-A-S-T. And and Wavecast, which is out of Southern California, and is actually a, a surfing, I mean, you know, they're oriented toward surfing, so it's more of an inshore, is very, very accurate. Um, I, I must say, I have been um, following meteorology for decades um and some meteorologists are good the rest which are the ones you see on the news on tv are not as accurate um nathan nathan cool who is the meteorologist here the chief meteorologist he's very accurate and so what nathan does is he not only you know gives you a forecast of of the wind and the weather and the surf and the water temperature and all, all the stuff that we need to know he actually looks into where all of these swells are originating, and he gives you it in, in, in graphic format, much from NOAA, showing you exactly where, in this case, in the Aleutian Islands, these, these storms are beginning to spin off really the outer edge of uh, Russia or Mongolia, and then become a storm in the Aleutian Islands, and then make their way down the coast and eventually come to Southern, Southern California. But when the summer comes, so much of our storms come from the south, and there's two major areas where they come from, from May to, let's say, October, and that would be way down by Australia, New Zealand, uh, Picatin, and, and then off of Antarctica. And then from there north, and those, those storms, they're originating thousands of miles away. And their swells are making it all the way to Southern California. And so if you've got 30-foot surf in off of uh, uh, Antarctica, it's going to be about four to five feet when it gets all the way up here. Then when we get to about June, 
the hurricanes begin to form off of Veracruz, Mexico. So if you are to look at a picture of Mexico, right below Mexico, which is, excuse me, Veracruz, which is right above the, the border of Honduras, I believe it's Honduras and, or Panama and, and Mexico is a very small area of land between the Gulf and between the Pacific Ocean. And that is where all of these hurricanes originate, that we get a large percentage of them in the summer start right there. And so he follows all of those from land into the water and then their strength and their direction and so on and so forth. So it's wave cast is a great thing to review because he comes out two or three days a week and gives you updated information. He gives you information that's good for two or three weeks in advance. Everything you need to know about surfing, surf fishing, being on the water is right there. Nice. Hey, real quick. I know we, we're in the end of this big time, but let me show you guys something. This is the new Alejo series reels by Akuma. This is their two-speed reel. John Bretta calls it the mini Makaira. He's been on our show before. This is an incredible machine. Watch this. Look at this real quick. I want to show you this video real quick, and then Bill and I will get back into discussing what's coming down the pipe. Hey guys, this is John Bretza, Director of Product Development for Okuma Fishing Tackle. And what I have here is exciting new upgraded Alejos two-speed reels. For all you tuna guys, bottom fish guys, anybody that wants something that's super durable, heavy duty, but you can fish lighter tackle, this is it. I refer to this as a mini Makaira. So what we've done with the, the Alejos updates is that we've taken the dual force drag system that's in the Makaira and we've mirrored that inside the isn't that crazy how bitching that reel is? That reel is incredible. If you want to learn more about this, you can look up Alejos, the Alejos two-speed reel on YouTube. There's videos about it. But gang, this thing is like a, a winch when you're catching that yellowfin. I just caught a whole bunch of yellowfin on New Year's Day with Pete Grosbeck. I was using the Alejos, and I didn't even have to use the rod. I just put the rod on the rail and just turned the handle, and it just winches those fish right in. It's a phenomenal reel, and it looks really good on those uh, the PCH rods. It, 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 it looks like they were made to fish with each other. It just complements the rod so much. Check out the Alejo Series reels at Akuma. You can get these at your local tackle stores. If they're not selling them at the local tackle stores, tell them you need them. You got to get those Alejos in here. We want these, gang. Let them know you will not be disappointed with this reel. It's like John said, it's the mini Makaira. And if you know anything about Makairas, you'll know what we're talking about. So I just wanted to show that to everybody. And thank you, Akuma, for being a part of our shows on Wednesday. We both appreciate it. Since we're talking about reels for a minute, Bill, I know you have a couple of Akuma reels there that you and I were talking about earlier, how bitching they are to fish in the surf because not, not that they're a, a uh, poorly made reel, but they're less expensive than the big dog reels. And you and I, we talked before we went live. We're not always holding. Sometimes we bring someone else with us and they're holding the reel and they like to lay it down. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you got me on my soapbox now. Uh-oh, <laughs> putting those rods down on the sand. I carumba. You, you know, when it comes to a surf fishing rod, you can spend three or four hundred dollars the sky's the limit as long as you don't back over it or slant in the 
you know, car door or something like that. You just need to rinse off that rod. You can use it your whole career of surf fishing and hand it down to your grandkids. When it comes to reels, the exact opposite is the true. Is, is true. I would never spend more than $100 on a spinning reel. And who knows, with inflation, maybe that'll that'll change. But the reason for that is that, you know, there are a ton of good reels out there, but the likelihood of your reel at the beach getting sand in it, one grain of sand, just needs one single grain of sand that will get in there. It will find its way to the bearings. I don't know how it does it. It'll get hung up in that grease in the bearings. And before you know it, you won't even be able to turn the handle of your reel. And the thing about most spinning reels, unless you're up in the thousand dollar range, is they're not serviceable. They're, they cost too much to take it all apart and clean it all up and put all the new parts in and put it back together. So I always deal, you know, I always purchase reels that are under a hundred dollars. And a couple of the best reels um, that are made are, are by Okuma for the surf. Um, one of them was the Rocks reel, which they no longer manufacture. And then another one are these Avenger reels. Um, here's one in the box. That's the, the Avenger um, 2500 or the Avenger 3000. Those are both the sizes that you're looking for. These spinning reels are... Um, uh, very lightweight. They probably weigh about six to seven ounces. They cost somewhere between 50 and let's say $75, depending on which size you get. Um, and, and when you take a look at one, I took one out of the box here. And of course, it's got line on it. I love using this red, this Cajun red Zepco line in the surf because it's, it's really easy to see. But they've got enough ball bearings where they have very good action to them. They have a great drag on them. It's a great bargain. What you don't want to do in the surf is you don't want to ever let your rod go underwater. You don't want to ever set your rod and reel down in the sand. Um, you're going to find sand will get in your reel from being in the wind. You might get it on your hands. You might um, take, catch a fish and taking the hook out of the fish. And then a few grains of sand get on your hands. And those go onto the reel when you're reeling. And before you know it, they make their way somehow into there. And, and get into the inside components, which ultimately frees that, that reel up. So stick with the less expensive reels. I tell everybody when you see, you know, these Avengers go on sale for $60, $55, buy a couple of them, put line on both of them, put one in the trunk of your car. So if you go down there in the morning and you realize your reel had gotten wet and it, it, you can't turn the handle, you can take it off, put on the new reel, re-rig it, and you haven't lost a tremendous amount of money. The last thing you want to do is go out and spend $1,500 on a, a, a Shimano a bait runner or an expensive Shimano reel and then get sand in and it's no good. Stay under $100. Stay with the Okuma reel because they're well-made. They last a long time. You'll be very happy. Yeah. And even you and I were talking before we went live, even, as much as we both try to empty emphasize the fact that you cannot let it touch the sand. You can't lay it down. Even if you think you're laying it down just perfect and turn around and help your friend with their fish, like Bill said before, one single grain of sand. I don't know how it does it, but it finds its way into the bearing every single time. And then the reel's done. And if it's a conventional reel or a spinner, sand is the number one enemy. So don't go taking your multi-million dollar reels down to fish in the sand. I know you're excited 
because Bill's on the show every Wednesday and he's talking surf fishing and you're like, oh yeah, I got to, don't do it. It's not worth it. I'm telling you, Kelly girl and I, we love to fish and we fish all over the place. And we were in Los Perillas and I just got the brand new Akuma Komodos. We got two of them, one for her and one for me. And we are fishing them on our nine foot rods. And I turned around and she had laid it down to come over and take a picture of me. That that real it still had plastic on the on the side plates. <laughs> Throw it in the trash. It's over. It doesn't even matter, gang. You cannot set them down. And like Bill said, you can't go in the water with it. You can't walk out into the water. It's not like the lake. We can do that in the lake when we're stream fishing, trout fishing, or we're fishing lakes. Yeah, we walk into the water all the time and we're fishing. You don't get sand in your reel at the beach, even if it's flat calm. Just look in the water. Take a handful of that water out and just let it drain through your and you'll go, wow, I had no idea all that salt, all that sand was in the water. It's everywhere, right, Bill? You can't get around it. Absolutely. You know, people send me, uh, you know, fish reports all the, all the time. Every day I, I get one or two, which is fantastic. I'm, I'm so thankful because I can see all up and down the coast. And, and again, from back east and stuff, too. So it's cool. But whenever somebody sends me a picture and it's like their fish laying on the sand and they lay their rod and reel down next to it to kind of give me an idea of the size of it just the hair stands back up on the back of my neck. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people do that. And even maybe they put, put some kelp down and laid on the kelp. And when they're paying attention to their camera, a wave washes over it. So whatever you do, never put it down. Um, I, at our booth coming up here at, at, at Bart Hall shows, we'll have um, sand spikes, these little sand spikes that have a, that are folding and they'll fit in your back pocket and you can just carry one of those along with you and just put it in the sand when you decide you need to tie a knot or take a fish off and put your rod in there and you're good to go. No sand. You don't want to lay it down in the sand in, in any manner. And if you do what I do, sometimes dig a hole and then get the butt of it down there and fill it up so it doesn't fall over. Now I've got all this sand on the butt of my rod. And, and if I don't remember to immediately go out and carefully wash it off, I can get it on my hands and in the reel it goes. And that's the end of that. Now, Penn makes sealed fishing reels sealed spinning reels they were designed for striper fishing back east and when you go back to massachusetts and long island and massachusetts and back there that zone connecticut um dudes are women and men are anglers are fishing for striper and they go out in the water to fish you know up to their this deep with the rod and reel and and fish in that salt water but they use these sealed spinning reels the reason that we can't use those here on the West Coast is that the smallest model made weighs about two pounds. They are so heavy. I mean, they're almost like a, you know, like a Bradley assault vehicle. They're so heavy. You know, they have all this extra metal on the outside of them that for our light line surf fishing, for the way that we walk up and down the beach, for the number of hours that we fish in surf fishing now, um, they're just too heavy to use. So nobody's come up with a sealed lightweight reel. Um, and when they do, I know from these other reels that were sealed, they're very expensive. So just stick with those inexpensive ones and, and whatever you do. 
Don't put your rod down in the sand. Don't put it in the water. And when waves come to splash up on you, try to turn your back to the wave if it's splashing up and keep your rod away from the surf. Because just like you said, Dave, you know, if you take a handful of that water, the reason that it's turbid or not clear is because there's all this sand suspended in it spinning around. And that gets on your hands or splashes up on your reel. And then you got a good chance of, of, um, of having the real break. I remember a few years back, probably about 15 years ago, maybe I took a, um, plastic, a bucket of spinning reels. I had 16 spinning reels in it up to save on tackle when my buddy Roger was running the place up there. And I went up to his real guy and I handed it to him. I said, Hey, I need you to go through each one of my spinning reels and, you know, get the sand out there and get them running and stuff. And, and Roger came walking over and he looks at me and he goes, so what are we supposed to do with these? There's no way they could fix them. He just handed them back to me. He said, just throw them in the trash can or use them for parts. Yeah, because it's weird how the sand just makes its way inside that reel. It just it doesn't even matter. We got a couple of questions here. One is uh, coming from me. I'm going to ask that in a minute. But Trevor was asking what kind of fish are running right now in California. Again, Trevor, if you're coming into California to go try to fish right now, it's going to be really tough to pick a window to come out on a boat and actually go fishing because of the fact that we have storm after storm after storm and to try to predict that ahead of time. But if you do want to come out here and do something really exciting, we are hoop netting right now. And the hoop netting is absolutely off the hook, the best lobster fishing we've seen in a long time. So if you and your family were to come out here, you're each allowed to have seven. And how cool would it be to come to Southern California and catch the most sought-after lobsters in the world? And I have this conversation, Bill, all the time with the people from New England and Maine. They're like, ours are the best. And I say, well, why do ours cost $38 and yours cost $12 if yours are the best? That's, <laughs> I know a $100 bill is worth more than a dollar. I know some of you like dollars, and that's cool, but it's the same thing with lobsters. If the lobster costs 38 bucks, it's probably for a reason. And yours costs 12. It's probably for a reason. I don't know. We talked about this with Tommy Gomes. People have their taste. Their taste is their taste. But until you've tasted our lobsters. So, Trevor, I would come out to Southern California and go lobster fishing. Then I know I'm going to catch something. Because the weather, the lobsters love the weather. Then the next thing, Bill, on this is braided line. I just got this through a text message from Evan. You want to know braided line in the surf. Do you use braided line? Do you use monofilament and why? Okay. Okay. Going back to the last question, just real quick. The stuff that's running right now in the surf would be really all of our California surf fish with the exception of Corbina. They're normally dormant quote unquote, in the winter, um, because they go in the estuaries in the back of the harbors and so forth. But with that said, in the last two days, I've gotten two reports of them. So um, really kind of everything, but in particular, this time of year is really good perch fishing for barred perch, barred surf perch, walleye surf perch, and uh, calico surf perch. But going to the question of, of braid, I do not use braid in the surf if I'm fishing with bait. And the reason for that is that braid has no stretch to it. 
So if I was fishing braid in the surf, you know, when you're fishing in the surf and you're, you're bringing that fish in, you've got the fish fighting you, you've got waves pushing the fish in, you've got water sucking out and pulling the fish out. You don't have the benefit of your drag kicking into gear and really giving you a benefit of a drag. For example, if I'm out on the boat with Dave and I hook a big yellowtail or tuna, that fish is going to take a long run. The line's going to peel perfectly off my conventional reel until it gets tired and then it's going to go into the spin and make its way back up to the surface in the surf you have all this pushing in pulling out in these short durations so you don't have enough time for your drag really to kick in so if you don't have stretch in your line these surf fish they have very soft mouths it's going to pull that hook right out of its mouth so if i'm bait fishing i'm using a single hook like a gamagatsu split shot drop shot hook or an own owner mosquito light hook I'm going to always be fishing mono because I want my rod to bend a lot and get, act as a shock absorber, my line to stretch a little bit and act as a shock absorber, and lastly, my drag to kick in. Now, on the other hand, if I'm saying, okay, I've got my conventional reel, um, so here's an example. So let, let's say that I'm, I'm fishing this rod. Um, for halibut fishing and i'm going to cast my conventional reel i'm normally going to fish 10 pound test on this reel i'm going to fish an eight to nine foot rod i'm going to cast a, a hard bait something similar to this bait this one has no hooks on it and i see that i've tied it on the back instead of the front um if i'm fishing that and i'm making all of these casts i'm going to make you know 50 100 125 casts i may very well fish braid the reason that i'm going to fish braid is it's going to give me a little bit more castability um it's going to have a tendency to sink a little bit more in the water which will help to keep my suspended bait down but what i won't do is i would never fish for halibut using a lucky craft or a, a, a battle star bait which is a you know a hard five inch hard bait i would never fish it with straight braid and the reason for that is when you cast out and you're retrieving in and, and you're using a suspension bait, your bait is going obviously down into the water column. As it goes down in the water column, it's getting closer to the bottom. But the thing is, as you're retrieving, the bottom is getting closer to the top, right? Because you're getting in shallower water and your, your bait is not coming up as the bottom comes up. What will happen is the nose of your bait will hit the bottom and as it goes back and forth like this it will abrase that braided line right in front of your knot so maybe the four or five inches in front of where the knot would be on your lure get that in the center here maybe this much is going to be abrased by the sand because the sand is rough and that braided line will have a very easy chance of breaking so i'm always going to have maybe about three feet not enough to go through my guides but about three feet of 10 or 12 pound mono fluorocarbon or mono and then i'm going to have the braided line on there and that's going to be the most effective use of the braid 
<clears throat> when you're using like a Lucky Craft or one of those that has two or three treble hooks, so you essentially have nine hooks on there, you're not worrying about having a single bait hook that's going to pull from the fish's mouth. So I'm not worried about the stretch in that scenario. So when I'm fishing a spinning rod or conventional rod and I'm fishing with a lure, whether it's a Lucky Craft or a Crocodile or a Castmaster, any of those, yes, I can fish braid as long as I've got that three-foot top shot. When I'm fishing bait, when I'm using the Carolina rig, a sliding sinker, I'm always fishing monofilament and I'd fish six pound mainline and then six pound fluorocarbon for my leader material. Well, that was a lot of information, gang. That, that You could have much left no, no stone unturned. Trevor, listen, if you're going to come do the lobster thing, call me, 949 374 0786. I have a couple of guides that run trips all the time. We are by far the very, very best. And if you don't get to go out with us, you'll be out with the rest and that'll be okay. But you'll, the re, the very easiest way to figure it out, Trevor, is to go look at our, because you're on Facebook right now. All you got to do when the show's over is go through your Saltwater Guides Facebook page, scroll down a little ways, and you're going to see our live hoop net trips. And then you're going to get to see. Justin in action out there doing it. You're going to find out why we're the best. We can cover everything and anything. And we have nice big boat to fish on, super warm. You're going to have the time of your life if you and your family come out here. And you said that you do it in Florida. I know Florida's limits is not like California. You can have seven per person. So if you brought your family of four, you could have 28 lobsters to take back home. It's an incredible thing. So call me at 949 949- three seven four zero seven eight six and that will get you dialed in on that trip you'll have you'll have a ball i promise you it's it's my name and that doesn't get any higher up the chain than that everything's coming off of my name that's why i only suggest a very very small amount of boats to fish on because at the end of the day you're coming back and you're going dave why'd you send me out with those booger eaters and i I didn't. I told you to go with. You went with the wrong people. Not my fault. So go back. We got a couple other questions. Okay, Dave, if I could just add to that, if I could just add to that real quickly. Your friend and mine, Pete, went lobster fishing in San Diego Harbor last week. And I think they got 21, I think. I can't remember exactly the number. And I added it up at the per pound price. And they came in with $596.00 worth of, of lobster for like two and a half hours of work on their little skiff. It, it, it is incredible. What a bargain it is to go lobster fishing versus buying them in the, in the fish store. Well, and Don Stanley just left a look at the price of lobsters right now. He's looking at it right this second. South California spiny lobsters, $47 a pound. Cause Tommy wow. Gomes, when he was on the show three weeks ago, it was 38. That's the price of, the most expensive lobsters on the planet Earth are the California spiny lobsters. They're a warm water lobster. They're very, very tender and very, very sweet. And they're the most expensive lobster. China pays 100 bucks a pound for our lobsters game. So just so you know. But I got a couple questions that probably you could talk about too. But somebody wants to know, on the artificial reefs, for a hook, do I use a circle hook? Do I use any swivels or sinkers or any other things. I don't believe in any of that. I have a whole series on my website of how I fish 
I only know how I do it. I don't use swivels. I don't <coughs> use beads. I don't use circle hooks. Here's my thought theory on the circle hook, Eli, is when I go fishing, my favorite part of fishing is setting the hook. That is my very most favorite part. And when they came out with these circle hooks 20 years ago and they started telling us, you don't set the hook, you just turn the handle till the line goes tight. Well, if that's what we're doing, I'm not going. Okay, because I don't want to <laughs> go and just turn it. I want to set the hook. The whole thing is setting the hook for me. I don't use swivels. I don't use beads. My sliding sinkers are tiny. I'm using an eighth of an ounce, quarter of an ounce. That's a lot of weight for me. I'm using just enough to get my bait to slowly sink on those artificial reefs in the water column. The fish that I want the most on these things, and Bill, you haven't even really talked about this fish, and now we're going to open the door. My favorite fish to catch on the artificial reefs with my Avenger series reel and my six-pound line and my number four thin wire hook and my eighth of an ounce slider is Sargo. Sargo are mm -hmm. such a bitch and fish. They're big, they're mean, they fight hard, and you can pretty much find them all the time. I don't know if this fish exists in the surf, but the artificial reefs, when I used to dive them, all of a sudden you'd get blacked out. You're on the reef and you're diving and you're grabbing scallops or abalone, and then all of a sudden it blacks out and you look up and it's a school of thousands of Sargo. You ever catch those in the surf? You know, Sargo, like you said, is so Sargo, which I, I don't know if it's related, but it's very similar to the spot fin croaker in that it's got these big shoulders on it and you hook them and man, they are just immense fighters. And of course, when you're near rock structure, they're going to try to take you into rocks or like a little yellowtail that way. They're not going to be like a Corbina that swims away from all, all the structure. Um, we do catch them on the open beach occasionally. Normally you find them adjacent to rocks is almost always where you're going to find them because they love eating limpets and, and the sidewinder crabs that live on those rocks. They're not big sand crab eaters. But with that said, uh, my buddy Ken, he caught the biggest one I've ever seen, uh, over five pounds, right in the middle of Bolsa Chica State Beach. It was it was two miles from a rock. And, and the only thing I can figure there is, you know, it was on the way from A to B and, and in the interim is when it got caught. Um, but yeah, we catch them on the open beach, but anywhere you can find rocks that are adjacent to sand, you're going to find Sargo. And Sargo are beautiful fish, great fish, great fighting fish, fun to catch, good to eat, all around a great fish. Yeah, they're related to the white sea bass gang. They're in the croaker family, mm -hmm. like the yellowfin croaker, spotfin. They're a big croaker, but they, they're... They're a different shape than other croakers. And like Bill said, they got big shoulders. They're mean. But you can get into these schools of them on the artificial reefs, but it's about keeping your bait suspended. The, the whole key with that Sargo fishing is as your bait sinks, you want it to sink as slow as possible. If you're firing a bait out and it's going to the bottom right away and it's not giving you any time, you're not going to get a Sargo. They're suspended. They're not on the bottom. And they're not on the top. They're in the middle of that water column. So that's why I fish with that eighth, eighth of an ounce, quarter ounce. I keep coming back to that. It's a lot of weight for me when I'm fishing the artificial reefs. I only going to use a quarter ounce if we're swinging. If we're swinging back and forth and it's making me have harder contact with the getting my bait. I want it to get to the bottom, but I don't want it to get to the bottom like that. I want it to get to the bottom in a, maybe a minute, maybe a minute. That's a long time for your bait to be in the water sinking through the water column. If it gets to the bottom in a minute, then I wind it back up and I throw it back out. Never let it set. 
My other questions from John Stanley. Do you think all this big swell is going to affect the artificial reefs close to shore? John, this big swell affected everything all the way out to hundreds of feet of water. This thing moved the ocean. Like Bill said, biggest swell they've seen since the 60s. This has a massive effect on everything. We're going to wait. This is, if you believe in a higher power, the higher power has taken the Etch-a-Sketch. If you remember the old Etch-a-Sketch, he's taken it, he's turned it upside down, and he shook the living bejesus out of it. And now you turn it back over. Now you got to make a whole new, you got to, it's going to change everything. So you're going to have to go out there and see. A lot of the artificial reefs in the shallower water are going to be covered with sand now. Lots of the reef is going to be covered with sand, which we haven't seen this phenomenon in such a long time because we've never seen the swell like this. So spots that we fished are going to be covered with sand. Other spots are going to be more exposed than they were before. And Bill can talk about that surf fishing. That's what's going to be going on right now. Like we talked in the beginning of the show, Bill, you're going to get down to the beaches that you've been fishing for 30 years and they're not going to be the same as they were because the whole thing just changed. Right. That, that's exactly right. You know, you know, there was a, uh -oh. a good episode of um, about getting gold up in Nome, Alaska, where a giant storm came in last year. And that was a really eye opening, good example that anglers should pay attention to was the fact that, so they had these spots where they were digging up gold out in the ocean, right? And they were either like dredging it up or they were um, using front end load or uh, whatever they're called, not front end loaders, but, but a way to scoop it off of the bottom. And when they, and so they, you know, film it underwater and you can see the cobble and kind of where a creek went through and all that stuff. When these big storms went through, there were areas where they had been digging that were now had three and four feet of sand on them that they had to now dig all the way through just to get back to where they were before. And then there were spots that had three or four feet of sand on them that were now completely exposed. So that is exactly what happens with these swells. It's not only the waves breaking and moving all that inshore sand around, Way offshore, where you're talking about the Iser Reefs, the Redondo Artificial Reef, the Hermosa Artificial Reef, off of Dockweiler, the Artificial Reef off of there, all of those can be affected by these swells that move that light sand on the bottom, either to cover things or to uncover things. And, you know, in surf fishing world, the best way to figure out what changes have been made and where's your next spot to fish is to look at that tide chart and go down there, you know, of course, a beautiful tide chart and, and go down there to the beach um, at low tide at a minus tide. So I look at the chart. It says, okay, on this day of the week, it's going to be a minus one foot. I'm going to go take my rod and walk down on that beach and especially places where there's um, jetties and there's offshore rocks and there's harbor entrances that you can now get to at that low tide and check out what the sand has done. You'll be really amazed. It really has a tendency to fill in certain spots and then expose new spots that maybe have not been exposed for years. I, I, I think there's some spots, I can think one in particular in Huntington Beach there, Surfside, that's exposed now that hasn't been exposed since 1992. It's been that many years have gone by. So it's all going to be different, gang, if you get out there. 
Real quick, Bill, we got something coming up that you and I are both super involved in. We got the Fred Hall, our Bart Hall Fishing Tackle and Boat Show in Long Beach, California. I'm going to be up there on the 27th and 28th doing some seminars. You and Wesley are going to be there. Let's talk about the Bart Hall Show for the last 10 minutes of this. And uh, if you got any questions, gangs, throw them up there. But if you want to go to the Bart Hall Show, you want to come see me or Bill or Wesley or any of the other great speakers speak there, we got an opportunity for you right here, right now to save on your purchase of your tickets. You're going to be able to save. I'm going to throw the QR code up there. Or if you're ordering your tickets, you use the code YSWG and you're going to save two bucks on your ticket. And also that's going to let Bill and Pat and Bart know that you came from your saltwater guide. You're just not buying the ticket off the side of the road you're buying it from your saltwater guide there's the qr code gang i just flashed it up on the screen if you want to come you want to save a little bit of money grab that qr code and and make sure that you uh come see us talk about the show what do we got coming down the pipe on this show oh it's going to be really exciting i i'm totally stoked um so dave you're coming up we're so glad we're going to be seeing you up there and we're all going to rendezvous and have a good time and you're going to have a couple of seminars on saturday a couple on sunday and you're going to cover everything from offshore fishing to hoop netting and everything in between yeah, and of course there's a bean that you normally have so we'll get some good laughs from that and and then for myself i'm really lucky because um a couple of years ago it's been about two years since west was up there I um, have surfaced quite a bit down in, in all along Baja, but in the Cabo San Lucas area, my buddy had his boat down there for years and we would just stay there and we'd go on these fishing, surf fishing expeditions. And I got in touch with a couple of guys that have now retired from down there. Jansen was one of them. Um, uh, Jeff Clausen's another one. But one day I was in Minerva's down there and, and this young kid came in who had just caught a really big, I uh, probably got maybe 60 pound, um uh rooster fish from actually right right around the corner there um just where uh cobble falso is right near there and he was talking about the fish and he said oh yeah i'm a guide and i said well i gotta go out with you so i came back about three months later and that's when i met wes and i i started fishing with him the guy had incredible skills i couldn't believe some of the fish that we caught and then as time went on he caught more and more big fish and he would post them on facebook and everybody's got to check out his site cabo surfcaster.com or cabo surfcaster on facebook that's probably a better place to go because all those pictures are in one place and he was catching dorado 50 pound yellowtail from the beach 100 pound grouper 500 pound lemon shark i mean just some amazing amazing stuff so a couple of years ago he came up and he made a presentation with me in the pre-show seminar fishing uh, from santa barbara to cabo san lucas we talked about surf fishing using light line techniques up here in southern california and then heavier line techniques he fishes 60 pound braid down there in baja and what different techniques we use our rigging the, the equipment the um uh baits that we use how to find fish at the beach whether it's up here or down there we talk about all those things but this year i'm really excited because a couple of years in a row without inviting me he went to the uh the show in um can't think of the acronym right now in florida the the um, fishing I ICAPS, excuse me icap show and this year he caught a giant tarpon I think it's one of the biggest ones I've ever seen. 
and he caught it from shore and then he jumped in the water to finish off the fight and, and get it in and get his lure out and, and let it go. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him about that, asking him how he did it, what he used for bait, how in the world he got in the water with this fish that was, you know, it's like six, five, the fish was his size, I would say. So we're really excited about this show and the show's going to have dozens and dozens of different seminars about it just about everything and then we're going to have a a, sem- a couple of seminars on saturday one with the department of fish and wildlife where you'll be able to ask um uh, bon and the commissioner questions um along with a women's symposium on that day which is really going to be interesting we've got gals who are going to talk about being a woman and being a deckhand going on the boats as a woman joining clubs as a woman being a writer and an editor of one of california's largest uh fishing tabloids uh, a woman who does that so it's all going to be a great show in addition to all of the equipment and the manufacturers and just all the fantastic stuff you find at the hall family shows oh, i'm looking forward to it i can't wait to come up there and see everybody the way that we're doing this gang is on saturday and sunday in the morning if you get there early i'll be in the cca booth I'll be hanging out with Wayne and Chris, meeting and greeting you at the CCA booth and praying to God that you sign up, get that lifetime membership or get involved at some level because I want to show you guys something. There's people that are watching this that haven't seen this before. You got to see this before we sign off on this thing. Let me see if I even got it anymore. Where did it go? Where is it? Uh Uh-oh. Did I screw this up, Elliot? Did I ruin it? I may have. I think I lost it. God dang it. Okay, I lost it. Frank Lepresti, I have a video. I don't know what I did with it. I I screwed it up. I lost it. We're under attack. They want to stop fishing in the United States of America. They're on a push, and they're going to really working hard on closing down fishing in California. Bill's on the inside with CCA. Gang, you need to be involved. I'm going to be there both Saturday and Sunday in the morning trying to get you all to sign up because I don't want to not be able to take my granddaughter fishing. I do not want to live in that world where I can't go fishing. I don't want to live in that world, but I sure in the heck don't want to live in the world where I can't take my granddaughter or my grandson fishing. I can't even imagine that, but that's where we're headed, gang. So if you're not involved with CCA and you're standing on the sidelines and you're going, oh, no, they're closing something else. This is real. If you're complaining about it, but you're not involved, then you don't even have a right to complain about it. Right, Bill? Well, a- absolutely. You know, and it doesn't just affect you and me and, and and our grandkids. It really affects everybody. I mean, for example, you think of all of the Native Americans along the West Coast who their life, depend. well, it still does to some extent, depended on harvesting, you know, these fish out of the ocean. Not only were anglers like you and me who spent eight, you know, eighty dollars to hundred and seventy dollars on a fishing license, have areas closed and can't fish, but they go to the Native Americans. They go, "Well, you were here before us, but you can't fish anymore." And and I'm going to give you like a short little story about that. The Columbia River, which is probably known as one of the greatest spawning areas for salmon in the world, really, um, had. A- a huge problem with a natural animal kills another animal for food. Um, 
had a giant problem with eels and sea lions that were way up the Columbia River near where the ladders were, where these salmon needed to get up in order to spawn. It was an area that was before their spawning area. And they were being killed by incredible numbers by these sea lions. And so they tried all these different things with the sea lions. They put like six of them on a boat. They drove them all the way down to San Francisco Harbor. And within two weeks, they were back up in the exact same place as they were two weeks before. They came right back to the Columbia River. They started eating all the salmon and ruining all the salmon again. Now, this one tribal member that I uh, know says, well, I knew it was the same one. And I said, well, how would you know? I mean, they look so much like he said this one was like a walrus. It was so big from eating all the salmon. And it must have had like 10 or 15 crocodiles stuck in its, uh, in its hide from all of these years of it eating where people were fishing and all that. So anyway, finally, after all this work by CCA, Washington and CCA, Oregon, they got the right, they got a permit from the federal government to go in and remove about half of them. And so they gave the ability and, and the right to do that to the Native Americans, this Columbia River tribe. And so I heard an interview by the um, chief of the tribe, and he said, we are so excited about being able to go and get these four uh, sea lions or, or seals can't remember which one it was, because that means that my tribe finally can get some of their raincoats back. That was one of the things that the Native Americans had used the, the sea lions and the seals for, was making coats. And because of the right taken away from them, not only to catch the fish, but to reduce this overpopulation of the sea lions, when the Native Americans saw that that was going to be available to them, they were very excited about it. And if anybody had a right to the Columbia River and everything that was up there, they did. And if it wasn't for CCA Washington and Oregon lobbying, not only in the state governments, but in the federal government for about six years, that would have never happened. So it's a real good reason to join CCA. They're out there trying to keep you know fishing open to all anglers. But besides doing that type of stuff, they also do incredible hatchery science down at Hubs Research uh, Institute, and they're working more and more every day on habitat restoration. And then, of course, they take their time to take kids and veterans fishing. So it's a great organization. There's a ton of volunteer opportunities, whether you want to be on one of the boats and help the kids and the veterans fish or whether you want to work in, and and maybe you have a connection to somebody in your local government that you can introduce the CCA people to, all of those things are helpful. Oh yeah, totally, you gotta be involved. We gotta finish off with this question from Jeff real quick. And Grunion's my favorite bait, so I wanted to hit this question and then we'll wrap it up. I told Bill an hour every day and we're already over the hour. So. <laughs> you see the question from Jeff there? Let's see. Um, how's the halibut fishing after our grunion runs? And do you use the grunion for bait the next day? Okay, that's a great. How many hours do we have for this? <laughs> that's a great question. Okay, let's talk a little bit about grunion. Okay, when you have anchovy and sardine, and Dave knows this a lot more than me being on the boat a lot. Um, they school up in, in basically a round school, kind of going around in a circle. You've all seen these great videos from um, gosh, the BBC's done them and stuff of, of striped marlin 
and tuna eating up a bait ball. Well, that's very different from grunion. Grunion, because they come ashore, they actually, rather than getting in bait balls, they actually create lines of fish. So they'll create four or five or six lines in a row, which might be 100 feet long, two feet wide, and then maybe 20 feet, and then the next line, and 20 feet, the next line. And they do that because they're looking for a place along the coast to stage to come into the shore. If you go down to Huntington Beach and Surfside Beach in the summertime, particularly in the afternoon, you can actually see these lines, these brown lines in the water, which you've got a lot of birds diving into and doing their own predation. Um, you can see those in the afternoon. And those are the grunion staging to come along the beach. In the meantime, there's all these fish, halibut, spotfin, yellowfin, croaker, corbina coming up on the bottom of them, pushing them up. And that's why the birds can dive and eat them from the top. And then when the tide is correct and they get the right area, that's where they come in and they spawn in the sand. They're an amazing fish. I mean, think of that, that fish. They can get out of the water. They can dig a hole in the sand. They can bury their eggs. They can undig themselves. They can wiggle back to the water and then they live. Like, can you imagine taking a trout out of the water for five seconds? It can barely swim away. So really, they're an amazing fish. So the secret is that whenever they're out there, the halibut are following them around till they find the spot where they're going to come into shore. And that is the secret to fishing Grenion and using the Grenion run as a place to catch halibut. Who knows? Where do they come in? Well, you really don't know where they come in. So there's a couple of places, a couple of ways to find that out. One is you can get up in the middle of the night and in your groggy stupor with your, your, the battery running down in your flashlight, you can walk along the beach and hope you don't get mugged and try to find where they come in. And then they come in, you're like, oh, they're next to Tower 20 and they're down to Tower 24. And then what you do is the next day, the next morning, the next evening, and probably for up to another week afterwards, you can come down and line yourself up at that same spot and fish right there for halibut. And of course, you're looking to use some type of bait that is going to mimic the look of, of the grunion. That's the hard way. The easy way to do it is if you have a regular beach that you like to go surf fishing on, take a few minutes to get to know the lifeguards that work on that beach. Either the kid that's in the tower or more importantly, if you can, the guy that's in the truck, normally a lieutenant. Get to know them. They may not be anglers, but nine times out of 10, they know where the grunion came in because it goes right through their the group of lifeguards or the um, interpretive specialists who work at the park there. So what I do if the grunion are coming in, I either call down to the lifeguard headquarters or I just stop the truck when I go to the beach. I say, hey, do you guys know where the grunion come in? Oh, yeah, they came in at Tower 16 last night. They came in like 11 o'clock. There were like millions of them down there. I know exactly where they are. Off I go down there to fish where the grunion came in because I know there's a really good chance that halibut are laying there in the sand eating eggs, eating some of the dying grunion that didn't quite make it back. They're going to be there for a week. They're not going to normally stage before because they don't know where the grunion are going to come in, but they will always stage afterwards for one to two weeks in that same area that the grunion came in and feed there. And once again, bait-wise, you can collect grunion. You can only get 30 now, but you can collect grunion on the beach. I lay them out flat on a paper plate, just like you do with a um, flying fish 
for fish and tuna, lay them out on a paper plate and freeze them. Then I take them back to the beach and I actually fish them frozen so that they're straight as they defrost their tail will turn and as their tail turns and they're defrosted they'll have a tendency to spin in the water which is unnatural so i'll fish the grunion themselves frozen but if i'm not fishing the grunion half ounce to one ounce crocodile half ounce to one ounce cast master lucky craft battle star stick baits all of those are going to work in the surf as long as you figure out where those grunion are coming in and lastly those grunion are going to run between march and, and august um, I think you can only collect in like July now. I have to look at the list again. They don't really run so much in August, even though they say that they do. But when you get to April, May, June, they're just running like crazy. Just, you know, you can go to my site, fishthesurf.com. I'll have a list of all the dates on there. Or you can go to the Department of Fish and Wildlife site, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, where they'll also have the days that they're coming in. And then just base your fishing around that. And both try both low tide and high tide in that situation. Yeah, that pretty much sums up my grunion. That's my grunion. I, that's my favorite bait on the planet. They're not easy to catch. You have to, like Bill said, get up in the middle of the night and go down there and go catch them. But boy, are they a phenomenal bait. And I'm a live bait guy. I'd rather just throw a bait out and get a bite than make 700 casts to get a bite. That's just me, though. I'm just the lazy well, fisherman guy. You know, Dave, I'm the same way because the thing is, is that in surf fishing is that when you fish with live bait or fresh dead, live, fresh dead, good bait, you should expect to fish on or bite at least on every single cast, every cast. When you're fishing a lure, you should accept the fact that you might not get a bite for 50 or 100 casts. You might go down there for two hours and cast your brains out and not get a single bite. So that's why a lot of us, you know, we like the live bait because it gives us more action than the lures do. But the lures, on the other hand, have a tendency when it comes to the halibut um, and spot fin and yellowfin croaker to catch bigger fish. But you're making a lot of casts. You really have to make a commitment. Yep, absolutely. Get, Bill, this was phenomenal. I hope you'll join us next Wednesday. This was great, right, everybody? It's always a pleasure to have you. Hopefully you can join us next Wednesday where uh, most of our audience has gone back to work. We only got 40 people watching right now, but I appreciate all 40 of you. I appreciate everybody, gang. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you're new to the show, we do this live Monday through Friday at 12 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. This Friday, I'm bringing in Amir K. He has... Some of the funniest comedy you've ever seen on either Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, or you can see all of his all of his videos on YouTube. He's been at the in the industry of comedy for a very, very long time. And you know what his favorite thing to do, Bill? Is fish. He loves, loves, loves to fish. He has lots of videos on his uh, Instagram page, but he has to be very wow. careful. Because you know how the world is today. He doesn't want to lose half his audience because he actually enjoys being outside. So he's very <laughs> careful. He's very, very careful. You know, they like the their people today love the white pasty people. They're way into that. They're just not too much into people with a tan. If we got a tan, they're going to figure out how you got it. And then they're going to tax the crap out of you until you're not tan anymore. 
<laughs> no, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. That's the kind of stuff you're going to hear me and Amir talking about on Friday. And you're going to see me talking about it at the Fred Hall show or Bart Hall. Gosh, I did it for so long with his dad. I, I can't. Bart Hall, the Bart Hall show at Long Beach Convention Center. The, what's the date to that show? It's January 25th through the 28th. And I will be there the 27th and 28th. I'll be at the CCA booth in the morning, getting the show started. Then I'll go over to the Akuma booth and the Promar booth. And then I'll be on stage at noon and I'll be on stage at three o'clock. So please stop by and see myself, see Bill. Grab those tickets, that QR code's on the video. Just rewind it and go watch it. You'll see it. Get Bill's calendar. We talk about it every week. He even talked about it today on the show. If you want to know when the tide is and what's going on, grab that calendar. The QR code's right there on the screen. I will see you all tomorrow. Hopefully, Kelly Girl will be with us. I'm hoping and praying she will be. And then on Friday, we got Amir K. Go check out all his comedy. He's a funny, funny man. Bill, thank you very, very much. And everybody else, thank you. Bye.